If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is John Middlecoff from 3 and Out with John Middlecoff. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. No! Oh, my God. How could he do that? Are you on Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brebber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today is a momentous day, Logan, because the Golden State Warriors just won another NBA championship. This is their fourth of the Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green era, of course, went and did it in Boston, in the TD Garden, a historic achievement on that front. Only the second time that a title has been clinched by an opposing team in Boston. And it's an incredible moment, and I think it's really incredible validation for such a long climb back that we have seen from this Warriors dynasty that has been through so much and morphed so much over the last few years. So, pretty incredible overall. So, I think there's a lot to get to today. I guess we can start with just your opening thoughts. What stood out to you about that game? And then I think really probably the most interesting thing is look at what this means for a lot of the key figures on the Warriors side because this is real history-altering stuff. Yeah, I mean, if we're focusing on uh, this last game, I guess not a whole lot surprised me at the end of the day. I thought Boston was going to pull it out. Um, they've been such a resilient team uh, all season long, and that was kind of my justification. You know, uh, down in the dumps, we, we, we've touched on Boston uh, a lot, but, I mean, down in the dumps midway through this season, the drastic turnaround to make the playoff push, you're down against the Bucks. you come back, you uh, Jimmy Butler has an amazing game seven, they still fight back. And so I just thought that – I thought Boston was going to have a little more fight on their home floor – Jalen Brown showed up. He had a good game, but not a lot surprised me. I mean, I guess I just kind of undervalued the, and it's a cliche that I think it's overused with Golden State at this point, but um, I guess I undervalued their championship experience, their uh, just being in that situation before, because I think that really 
is what made the difference in this final game. Like, Steph, Clay, Draymond, fuck, I'll throw Wiggins in there, man. Like, I think they smelt blood in the water um, in this third quarter, in the fourth quarter, as it's waning, and they just kept hitting big shot after big shot, and Boston, like they uh, did in the rest of this series, could not get anything going offensively late. I wasn't really surprised about, I, I think, anything in this last game, Carson, but Golden State just... They just felt it, man, and you could feel it yeah. as the game just kept going along. That they knew that we can put this out. Obviously, they have such a big lead. Uh, I think Boston cut the lead to nine at some point in that third quarter, and then they just kept hitting big shot after big shot. Um, I wasn't surprised by a whole lot except the fact that Boston just, I don't know, man, they just kind of let it slip away. Again, a lot of fight from them in the third quarter, and I thought they might make this a close game, but um, you just don't get enough from uh, you don't get enough from Tatum. You don't get enough from the supporting cast, and Golden State played great defense. This is a gritty game, but I was just more surprised that this wasn't a closer uh, game at the end of the day. But it, at this point, I don't know, man. I, I don't know why I went with it, because in retrospect, Steph has such a shitty game. He goes 0 of 9 in game 5. I mm-hmm. felt like I should have seen it coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, Steph is not going to have two bad games like that, and that's honestly what Boston needed. Steph was unconscious, but... I wasn't surprised by that, man. I kind of expected him. And the Warriors stepped up and they played their best basketball uh, when it mattered in this game, man. They were just they were just a better team. So, no, I wasn't surprised about a whole lot. I just thought that Boston might make this a closer game. What did you think about game six? Yeah, I agree. I don't think that there would be many individual game outcomes that could really shock me. Honestly, from damn near any series in these NBA playoffs, as we saw, there's so much volatility, but you kind of know what the floor and ceilings of both these teams are. And we very consistently saw that the floor for the Warriors was a lot higher, that there was a more consistent level of offensive production, even if it wasn't as much in the half court in this series. And Boston outperformed them there because of the consistency they were getting in transition, because of the mega superstar that Steph is, because of some of the additional shot creation and shot making alongside him. And this game... I mean, obviously, we see again Boston undone by a combination of poor decision-making and just ball control and the lack of that lead playmaking engine offensively where they have 22 turnovers, and that directly feeds in to Warriors offense where they have 13 steals and you're leading to high-probability transition opportunities. The Warriors shot the lights out. They were 41% from deep, made 19 threes. That's obviously pivotal and kind of signature to what they do, and Again, despite their size disadvantage, the Dubs found a way to win on the glass, and they ended up with 15 offensive boards in this game. So I just think it's a lot of what we saw win them games throughout. Like, they were more disciplined. They found a different gear in the second half of the series where they played harder, and they played smarter consistently. And they had so often, pretty much every moment, the best player on the floor. I mean... Obviously, Jason Tatum could not come close to reaching the level of Steph throughout this series, and this game was not an exception. You go out with 13 points and five turnovers on six of 18 shooting, and so there was just a different level of stability, of consistency, and of championship traits with the Dubs is really what it comes down to at the end of the day. Like, it's not a talent deficit. In fact, through four games, we were talking about how significant is the talent advantage in Boston's direction. So I don't think you point to that whatsoever. I think you point to best player on the floor, doing the little things, and ultimately not beating yourself. The Celtics beat themselves too consistently. There is a flaw in the structure of their offense. I do believe like it's not as glaring as I would have said earlier, but it's tough, man. 
when you are so reliant on two heavily score-first wings who are developing as playmakers to create so much of your offense, and you don't have additional shot-making and playmaking in terms of creation alongside them, really, there's just times where you're going to go into lulls, and we saw it throughout the playoffs. We've seen it for years with Boston. They recovered to a point where it was enough for them to get to Game 6 of the NBA Finals. Their defense was transcendent. All of that is great. But the Dubs had a better formula. And they had the all-time player, and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. And honestly, like I said, I think the most interesting part of this is probably just reflecting on what this means for the Warriors in terms of individual guys and also just the incredible achievement that this is because two years ago, they got the number two pick in the draft. I mean, obviously, everybody was either gone or basically injured for the season with the exception of Draymond Green and down to their significant role players from the title teams. I mean, they had nothing left. And then last year, you got the transcendent Steph, you got some really good Draymond, but it was still clear that they were more than several pieces away. Clay wasn't back. And to have now the key guys develop in terms of the young role players and the minimum guys who they added where they did such a phenomenal job and then have the big three come back together, it's just incredible. But let's stick with Steph for a second here, Logan, because we had a whole conversation on our last podcast about, okay, with a title, does he firmly fix himself into that top 10? I don't know if you have an answer for this right now, but I want to get right down to the nitty-gritty and figure out exactly where Steph is in our respective top 10s of all time, or I suppose he could be outside of there as well. Do you have an answer for that? I, we're going to have to do some some mental math here. Um, okay. I, I, and I'm going to... Steph is top 10 for me. I can concretely say that now, and I think... We had a little brief discussion about this. You brought up the point last pod we did. Uh, you think he would surpass Kobe with uh, a win in this finals. I don't know if you're yeah. still sticking with that, but I, I think I would agree. Um, uh, all right, so my list, right? I got MJ1. Obviously, I got LeBron2. I got Kareem3. From then mm-hmm. on, guys I would have above Steph, I think I'd have Tim Duncan. I think I'd have Larry Bird. And it's tough, man, because from there, I mean, you have the Hakeems of the world, you've got Shaq, you've got Wilt, you've got Bill Russell, you've got Magic. I think I'd have Magic just barely above Steph right now, but I think he might catch Magic by the end of his career. Um, yeah, so I mean, he's either, depending on where I put him above the bigs, and honestly, I think I'm going to put Steph at seven now that I've written all this out, Carson. I think I'm going to go MJ, LeBron, Kareem. Um, then I'll probably go Bird, Magic, Tim Duncan in some sort of order. And I think I'd have him above Shaq, Hakeem, Wilt, and Bill Russell. Um, because, I mean, now, like, Steph has been the best player on a championship team. And you talked about a lot, a lot, Carson, last time um, about the on-off numbers of the best of any player since the data started being tracked, um, the gravity yeah. that Steph has on offense. And I think that's why, like... I mean, the stuff that he did in these playoffs is staggering. The highest volume true shooting in a final series ever by a guard. He shot nearly 63% on over 100 attempts against the Defensive Player of the Year and the number one defense in the league. He shot 44% from deep in the finals, the highest ever with 50-plus attempts. Um, That also includes the game where he shot 0 of 9. He's the first player to ever average 30 points, five boards, five assists, and five threes in a uh, in a single final series. Like, 
this was a a transcendent run from Steph, and I think it puts him above them. There's just not as much offensive dynamism. Even I think Shaq's probably the closest for beating Steph out for that seventh spot, but I don't think it's ludicrous to have him there. He's been the best player on a finals team now um, twice. He's got another two rings. He's a four-time champ now. Like I think because of Steph's gravity offensively, Carson, I think I would have them above them. Obviously, the two-way impact, you can argue, in favor of Shaq, Akeem, Wilt, and Bill. I don't think any of them can touch what Steph brings to the table offensively. And on top of that, Steph has helped his resume out defensively as well in this playoff run completely. Against opposing point guards, Monte Morris shot 33% on Steph. John Morant shot 22%. Luka Doncic shot 39% on him. And Marcus Smart shot 33% on him. So, you know, I I think unequivocally all of those guys I listed, all of those big men are some of the greatest defenders of all time. But Steph's not even a liability defensively anymore. So I'm not even going to take a Steph is a negative defender argument into that. So because of his offensive impact, uh, I think it's greater than all those bigs I listed. Again, I think you can make an argument for Shaq. I think I've got Steph 7, Carson, and I think there is a world. I think he needs another ring. I think he needs a few more All-NBA selections. There's 100% a world where I think he could overtake Magic as the greatest point guard of all time. Do you think, is any of this ludicrous? No. None of that is remotely ludicrous. I think that this is really tough, man, because... I had a top 10, but as I reflect on it, I really don't agree with the configuration I had. So what I will say is that Steph is definitively a top 11 player of all time, in my opinion. If you have him lower than that, I would consider that to be, I don't know if I would say disrespectful, but probably somewhat unfair. And Akeem would have been 11 you know, maybe before this run, I don't necessarily even know that, but I think he's the other guy in the top 12. And I just think as incredible of a two-way force as he was and as remarkable as it was that he won two titles, one without another star-level player on his team, and one without with a guy who was not like a top 10 player in the league anymore at that point, that's a pretty incredible resume. However, everything you mentioned about Steph, right, it is all-time efficiency as a scorer. I think he's sixth all-time in true shooting percentage, period, point blank. He is the best of any star-level player ever. He has the best on-off numbers, the second-best on-court numbers. He's top three all-time in playoff win percentage alongside his two teammates in Klay Thompson and Draymond Green. I mean, offensively, it's basically just been perfection because we know that there's so much that even the raw output cannot capture with him, and yet the raw output is elite. I mean, he's had multiple 30-point-per-game seasons. He has had dominant scoring postseasons consistently. He was above 27 a game in this one. He's almost 27 a game for his career in the playoffs, which is incredible. And then it's just like every way offensively, man. We know that he can absolutely murder you out of the pick-and-roll, out of isolation, off-ball, he is just a constant machine and weapon. So, I think that he can really compensate for a lot of the two-way gap that does exist. Because Steph has gotten a lot better defensively. Steph is a good defender at this point. Most all-time players, though, are two-way forces. Like, really, the only exceptions within the top ten are Magic and Bird and now Steph. Everybody else was pretty much an elite defensive player. And 
I mean, even Larry got a few all-defense nods. He was never an elite defender, but a very good defensive playmaker. And Steph has had some of those traits in his career as well. But I do think he's above Kobe. And I think he has to be above Bill Russell for me. I honestly think Bill Russell is probably taking the biggest fall for me, which is difficult because I am a huge advocate of his immense value. I think he has to be in that top 11. I think he's the greatest defensive player ever. There's a reason he won five MVPs when he was going up against peak Wilt. Hold up. I just want to unpack this real quick. You would have him above Hakeem. Steph or Bill Russell? Uh, Bill Russell just like defensively. You think he's a greater defender than Hakeem? Yes. I mean, we did our top 10 defensive players of all time episode a while back, and it's just remarkable the consistency with which the Celtics were the best defense in the league, largely because Russell was such an unprecedented deterrent, and he was right up there for the smartest and most instinctual defender ever. He had insane physical traits, blending fluidity and agility and vertical ability and length, and people estimate he averaged 8 to 10 block shots a game. He's the greatest defensive rebounder ever. Like, I honestly don't even know if it's all that close. I mean, Akeem maybe is the greatest defensive playmaker because the blocks and steals numbers are like unfathomable. But again, people were estimating Bill Russell was blocking eight to ten shots a game. The impact on team defense is just undeniable. So I don't want to disrespect him. It's just like there's so few flaws with guys of this tier. And at the end of the day, the inability to score the ball at a really high level is a real thing. When you average 16 a game and 15 a game for his career on 44% from the field, I don't know, though. He's a five-time MVP. He's an 11-time champion. I think he's the greatest defensive player ever. But I think I would have Steph above him at this point, and I do think I would have Steph above Kobe. And the thing with Kobe is that, obviously, in terms of longevity, raw accomplishments, it's unbelievable when you have 15-time All-NBA, 12-time All-Defense, five rings, 18-time All-Star, although a couple of those are really not legitimate. Those are just fan-boosted. But regardless, the consistency of his raw output as a scorer and the two-way level he could reach at his peak, the blend of athleticism and skill as a scorer, it's obviously incredible. And he won a ton. But, I mean, I think that there's a legitimate offensive gap between the two of them. The efficiency gap is massive. I think the gap in terms of The impact you can have away from the ball is massive. The playmaking gap is really significant. The on-court, on-off data will say something to you about the gap as well, where Kobe's teams were only four points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. Over 20 years, that tells you something. That's not a great number. It's a good number, but it's not nearly comparing to Steph's, which is plus 12 or something around there. I mean, it's, again, literally the best of his era. So I think I feel comfortable with Steph above both of those guys. And then you get into Shaq and Bird, and I think it's really, really close with both of them. I think that Shaq's peak is higher. I mean, Shaq averaged, lest we forget, 35 and 15 effectively or better in three straight NBA finals and won all of them and was 14-time All-NBA. And when engaged was a defensive force as well. And like, just obviously athletically, we've never seen anything like him and I do think the other thing with Kobe that matters is that, yes, of course, he has the five rings, but if, I mean, and he was clearly far and away the second best player, obviously, on all three title teams. But 2000, he averaged like 15 a game in those finals really inefficiently and like didn't really show up. And he only really had one great final series all around out of those first three. And I do think the efficiency thing matters overall. 
So I'm just walking through all my thoughts here. I think Steph is between 7 and 9 for me. I think I could see myself having him above Bird or Shaq. He does have the four rings over Larry. I don't know, though. Larry's overall peak was just so incredibly high. And although his supporting casts were damn good all time, obviously he never played with Kevin Durant, right? And those two rings for the Warriors, I mean, do have to be weighted a little bit less heavily. And Shaq, although I don't think the fourth ring with Miami matters all that much, the LA peak, uh, what he was able to do in Orlando, the raw scoring dominance I think I would still lean with both those guys over Steph but the thing is the reason I say that is I don't think I should ever possibly be able to move anybody down my all-time list right because you don't want to presume anything it has to be is Steph Curry's career ended today where would he be because you cannot presume any longevity, right? That catastrophic injury, obviously, God forbid, but that could happen to anybody at any moment. A guy could choose to retire at any moment. So you can't think, oh, well, I was projecting another five solid years. That's impossible, in my opinion. So with that in mind, I feel comfortable with him at nine right now. It's tough putting him above Kobe because of longevity, because of the two-way, because of the immense winning that Kobe did. But at the end of the day, Steph is... He's the greatest winner... I don't know if I could say of this era because of LeBron's consistency, but in terms of winning percentage and consistent dominance of teams when he was at his peak and had good pieces around him and the on-off data and everything that we've talked about, I mean, Steph's right up there for the best of all time. And he's got four rings, man. That's a special club. The four rings in multiple MVP club is MJ, LeBron, Kareem, Magic, Duncan, Russell, and now Steph Curry. That is a very, very, very special club to be a part of historically. So, he, he's he got to be top 11. And I think there's a lot of places you could argue him in the back half of the top 10 that I would not at all be offended by and you could make legitimate arguments for. So, I want to ask then, sorry, this is a tangent from earlier. So, would you have, I just want to get a gauge for your top 10. I want to run them back one more time. But, would you have Akeem over Bill Russell? No, I would not. Even with Bill Russell's like liabilities offensively, like because I think Hakeem just like it's not even close. So here's what I think: when you are evaluating all-time players, it's an interesting tango to dance because you can look at skill set, but at the end of the day, when you're evaluating an all-time player's resume, I don't know that you can dive much into what ifs and think about, oh, what I put, what if I put this guy in this situation or X situation? How did he perform? Right? Because at the end of the day, what you do in your one NBA career is what you do in your one NBA career. The reason I say that is that Bill Russell won 11 championships in 13 years, and uh, that's just a remarkable and obviously completely unparalleled historically feat in terms of just the consistency of dominance. And he was the driving force throughout all of that. And yes, he played with an MVP in Bob Cousy and he played with an unbelievable guy at his peak in John Havlicek and such great supporting cast and Sam Jones and Tommy Heinsohn. Like, obviously, those teams were loaded and they were in a much smaller league. But 11 rings in 13 years is unfathomable winning. And he did that. And so, yeah, I think Akeem is certainly more skilled offensively. I don't want to understate the value of Bill Russell as a passing big man and as a fast break starter because he was legitimately one of the better ever in that respect. 
But I think when you're the greatest defensive player of all time and the greatest winner of all time, I got to give you that respect. And so I will to Bill. And in fact, it hurts me having him as low as I do, but it's just like any flaw stands out glaringly when you are in this class of player all time. And he does have a flaw that kind of nobody else does in this class. All right. So then uh, can I get a recap? Can I get uh, the Carson Brebber official top 10? Okay. We have the same top three, MJ, Braun, Kareem. Then, Magic. Hmm. You know, I should really sit down and perfect this because I'm not all the way there (laughs) yet. Then, it's Wilton Duncan. I don't know if I would have Wilt above Duncan, but that's my five and six. Then I think Shaq, Bird, Steph... And then Russell and Kobe, I would need to think more about who's 10 and who's 11. But that's my top 11. And then Akeem would be 12. Okay. I think I think officially right now I'm going to go MJ, LeBron, Kareem, Magic, Duncan, Bird, Curry, Shaq, Hakeem, Wilt, and then Bill, then Kobe. Okay. Wait, where was Akeem for you? Uh, I have him above Wilt and Bill. I think he's at two, three, wow. four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm going with uh, Hakeem's nine for me. Above Wilt? This I just, is off topic now, but can you explain that to me? I mean, I just think I don't know, man. I I can't really give a whole lot on Hakeem, but like because I didn't actually watch him play. I just think I think Hakeem could lock. And again, we're doing. I shouldn't hold stuff against them any guys because of eras. I just think Hakeem. I'd just rather have him, man. He was a good passer at his peak. He's, I think he's the greatest defender uh, to ever lace him up. He's got a more developed, he's got a really reliable and developed post game, like the greatest of all time. I, I don't know, man. I think I'd just, I think I'd just rather have Hakeem. Hmm. Well, here's what I'll say. This is why I don't think you can just package skill sets right because basketball was so far ahead in 1995 when Akeem is winning titles and what it was in 1959 when Wilt is coming into the league there's so much progression there that is enabled by so many different developments in medicine and skill and rule changes right that allow for more creative ball handling all this stuff they added this thing called the three-point line it's like it's everything changes so that's why I'm such an adamant believer in compare it only to a guy's contemporaries in terms of like how you're judging them, right? Which kind of takes the basketball skill element of it when you're comparing guys from such different eras out of it a little bit. Just because basketball players will always collectively get better and better over time. That will happen until the day there is no more basketball, which will hopefully be never. I would just say, Wilt, I mean, is actually probably the greatest physical force to ever play the game because... Shaq, in terms of pure strength, sure, but Will's blend of being among the fastest players in the league, the strongest player in the league, pretty much the tallest player in the league, the longest player in the league, all of that, to then on top of that have legitimate scoring skill and to be capable of leading the league in passing, to be consistently the most prolific scorer at his peak, and then shift and become the most efficient scorer And again, a a leading playmaker, an offensive hub in that way, and among the best defensive players in basketball, it's just, I think that in terms of the menu of ways he could utterly dominate people, 
Wilt is damn near in a class of his own all time and probably is in a class of his own among big men. And, I mean, obviously the combination of the statistical production is incredibly difficult to rival. Of course, there's context there with pace and all that, but he was very consistently very efficient. And back half of his career, I mean, the guy did stuff to win. Like, he never had the perfect attitude and whatnot, but I think even if he didn't play up to his maximum winning potential, his individual force is, again, like, damn near in a class of its own all time, and he did ultimately do enough in terms of winning alongside that. Uh, To me, it's just like, they end with the same amount of rings, and so given that, it's really tough for me to look at Akeem's resume and say, yeah, he did more outstanding individual stuff. He had more ways in which he could dominate the game because he just didn't at the end of the day. That's my take. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And I need to I need to go back and do more research on Wilt and Bill to lock in, you know, officially. It We're splitting hairs when it comes to these kind of big men, but... Um, I mean, that, that's all fair. I, I don't really, I just, I always struggle when it comes to, to grading Wilt and Bill among these guys because I always think of who would I want today? You know what I mean? Um, and it's no discredit yeah. because, I mean, you can drop Wilt and Bill into any era and they'll they'll succeed. I, I always have trouble with that. But, yeah, I, I don't know. Fuck, you're a damn good arguer. You know that, Carson? You're the best Thanks, one man. I ever met, dude. And I'm really, <laughs> fuck. I don't know, man. You always fuck with my head when we do shit like this and I don't know where to, Please will because now I do want to put him higher. You've made a stellar argument. Um, mm. I'll, I'm going to still rock with my top ten, but it's always right. close with these guys. All right. Well, regardless, I mean, this moment in time for Steph is incredible. I mean, to go over 31 a game on incredible efficiency, almost 63% true shooting, and to carry a team that does not have another legitimate superstar. I mean, a very good supporting cast, sure, but there's not another top 25 player on this team. No chance. I'm trying to think about how far you can go. I don't think there's a top 30, another top 30 player on this team. I mean... You could argue maybe not top 50. I don't know, depending on where you have Clay and Draymond. Top 50 feels too far to me because I don't want to overreact to how bad draymond was at times just in terms of the pure scoring of the basketball he's 100 a top 50 guy i want i think he's somewhere around 30 but that's crazy man like we talked about it's been a long time since anybody's done something like that you got to go back to dirk in 2011 mm-hmm. and so we can talk about the team defense and the depth and a lot of those supporting pieces are really good guys stepped up wiggins was phenomenal all that but I mean, Steph just did something that has very rarely been done throughout NBA history, and it was an unbelievable individual performance. It hopefully helps defeat one of the dumbest narratives to ever exist, which is that he is a guy who has underperformed in the finals when he literally entered this series top 10 all-time in finals points per game with a handful of appearances already and had done so on better efficiency than MJ, LeBron, even Shaq, eight-point-something points true shooting better than Kobe and had won three of those five series. Like, it was just so many reasons that it was so stupid that people had this thought in their head. And it's just because the guy didn't win finals MVP, but he's averaging like 28, 8, and 8 with KD on his team. You know, it's just what's he going to do if the guy's scoring 35 a night? Anyways, I think this is a great moment for Steph. I think it firmly launches him past Kevin Durant. And again, I think for me personally, past Akeem. 
which were probably the two guys who was he was competing with most intensely. And uh, this is the moment, man. I mean, Game 4 is right up there for the moment of Steph's career at this point, in my opinion. To have a back-against-the-wall performance like that, where you go out and hang 43 on incredible efficiency, it's a ridiculous shooting display, and your team needs every bit of it, and it's to effectively keep them alive in the series, that's like all-time Pantheon stuff. And this overall series was incredible from a guy who in some ways had a disappointing regular season and had to deal with injury and all this stuff. It's like, no, he is back. He is legitimately as good as ever. And when he has been healthy and when the Warriors have been healthy around him, they have been firmly in the title conversation every year since he reached his peak. In fact, I mean, since he reached his peak or the beginning of it, his first MVP season, if you're looking at years where you could have looked at that roster and thought they'd have any legitimate chance at a title, they're 6-for-6 six six in making the finals and they have four rings. And even if you mm-hmm. include last year, because you can't possibly include two years ago because Steph played five games, that would be ridiculous, then they're 6-of-7, man. You know, take your pick out of that. It's incredible. That doesn't happen very often whatsoever throughout NBA history. No. And to do that in the stronger conference as well, it's incredible. 100%. Kevin Durant or not, it's incredible. And by the way, they always won at an elite level without KD on the floor if Steph was out there. Damn right. And you know what? The Warriors have not lost a series where Steph, Clay, and Draymond have started every game. Ever? Ever. That's incredible. I mean, it's it's genuinely all-time stuff. I want to ask you a question. We can get into legacy stuff and deeper than that. I want to ask you about, because you talk about the supporting cast, um, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you about where you think credit uh, deserves to be due, like in the order for the Warriors. I had this debate with my dad um, last night, just in terms of like who deserves the most credit after Steph. Um, Steph was easily the best player on the court. For me, I thought Wiggins was the second best player in this series. Yeah, um, 100%. Defensively, with what he was able to do uh, to JB and to Tatum, um, uh, Tatum shot 37.5% when he was guarded by Wiggins. Um, w- Wiggins balled out. I mean, the, the hustle yeah. plays, the rebounding, I think he was second. I think it gets tougher after that. I'd probably have... My dad had Jordan Poole, either two or three, and I told him he was fucking nuts. Um, yeah. I, I don't know where Jimmy got, came up with that take. <laughs> I think I'd probably have Draymond three, honestly, even though he struggled offensively so much I think the impact he had defensively in this series playmaking cannot get overstated um Jalen Brown shot 29.4 percent when he was guarded by Draymond Green he shot one of 15 from three when Draymond was on him all-time defense again then I'd probably go Clay and then I think there's a debate to be had between uh Looney or Poole because I don't understand what Looney did in this series when he you know was out there he was productive so I think it goes Steph Wiggins Draymond Clay, then I'd probably say Poole, then Looney, tentatively. Uh, what do you think? Are you in agreement with me? So, there's a cavernous gap, obviously, between Steph and Wiggins. And then I think there's a pretty cavernous gap between Wiggins and the field. I mean, he was the second best scorer for them in this series. He was genuinely pretty pivotal on the glass and found a gear that he has not in his career there and led the team in rebounding. He was impactful as a defensive playmaker. He was sensational on the perimeter. 
He had moments as a help side guy, nine blocks in this series. Like, his shot from deep wasn't on super consistently. But I don't know how you look at anybody else and say they even come close to Wiggins' impact in this series. Athletically, he was exactly what they needed to match up against those wings. I mean, without him, this series is completely different, right? Because, obviously, you have Draymond as that one high-end perimeter option. But you need another guy, and Draymond doesn't always want to be out on the perimeter. You know, he needs to be able to be that help side force as well. And so, with that and his impact on the glass and what he did as a score of the basketball, it's Wiggins by a mile for the second spot. Then, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, dude. Everybody else, it was like game to game. All right, we'll see what we get out of you. Like, Draymond obviously came up big at the end and defensively was really strong overall. But also there were a couple of mind-bogglingly horrible performances offensively. Pool, yeah, I don't... I, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what his moment would be in this series that you look at and say... Jordan Poole was sensational there. He really, really mattered. Like, I mean, not big a ton. I mean, big time late shots. Yeah. Yeah, but overall, I don't know. But the thing is, the other candidates are kind of uninspiring because it's like Clay scores 17 a game in this series, but man, was he frustrating, dude. I mean, it's consistently just horrible shots, and Clay can take any shot and you can be okay with it, but like, he ends the series sub 36% from the field. He just needed to stop forcing the issue, and he never did, because what did he shoot in game six? He was five of 20. Like, that's kind of inexcusable to go out like that when you're not your team's best player, and you're clearly struggling to create your own shot and everything. 12 twos is just way too many for Klay Thompson in the biggest basketball game of the season. So I guess I'll go Draymond, and then Poole, and then Clay. Whoa! Yeah, I don't know, dude. Like, maybe I'm being overly reactionary because Clay obviously had a couple of. I mean, game really five was nights. huge. Yeah. Game five was massive. And maybe that's enough alone. I just don't know. Like, he had a really good half in game three, and then that stopped. I don't know. Maybe I should have Clay over Poole. It's just there were so many times where I felt like, wow, mm-hmm. that is a really really bad shot that is a negative for the team I mean, that you took that shot I, yeah it's really disappointing I mean all series long they're setting him up in easy position pin downs screens at the top of the key I mean stuff that just he was missing shots where I mean it's not like it hasn't been consistent all season long Clay has had his up and downs but shots where you're just like that's his money that's his bread and butter that is an eat like I you're already banking him on, on making these shots and it, it was frustrating I wasn't mad at him getting downhill because there were portions in these games, Carson, where, yeah, where you're saying, please stop shooting. Please do something else, and he'd get a tough mid-range bucket. Um, I think to to consider Poole over him is ludicrous, though. I mean, Poole had a few good games off the bench, and he was pretty consistent um, most of the way. Yeah. I I think Clay got a little... had way more big moments, but it's just like... (laughs) He also had so many more bad moments. I mean, he's out there for almost twice the time. Who was uh, who was the most impactful bench player outside a pool for Golden State in the series? Was it Otto Porter Jr. or was it uh, Gary Payton the second? I don't know. I think they both played great. I don't know if there's really that much value in trying to draw a distinction between the two. I thought they did their roles exceptionally well. They were efficient offensively. They busted their asses defensively. 
And I, I think, thought that they both did exactly what was needed. And I think Gary, I, I hope they re-sign Otto Porter to, uh, Jr. too. I think Gary got himself paid with this series too. Mm-hmm. I think the Warriors were going to bring him back, but I mean, his value really shined through, especially in this last game. Um, you know, Tatum losing the rock a couple of times where Peyton is poking it loose on drives, the hustle, the um, even on offense, man, like not trying to do too much. Again, with Golden State, it's easy when you have so many of these great offensive creators, right? That's what makes the role player's job on this team so much easier. When you have the shooting of Clay, of Curry, of Poole, knowing that you don't have to pull that weight where you can just reset. But Peyton did that to perfection, too, getting to the rack, uh, getting out in transition. And damn, man, I didn't know GP had that kind of bounce, Carson. You see oh, him dude. You see oh, him rise on those dunks bounce. under the basket. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, dude, they literally stick him in the dunker spot sometimes. There was like a practice video, <laughs> a warm-up video of him <laughs> practicing drop-step dunks, and it's like this guy is 6'3", but yeah, no, he has insane, and he wants to dunk on everybody at all times. I love GP2. What would you, uh, what would you, what's the most you'd pay him? Uh, $100 million a year. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's... Worth of eight to ten million a year, but the Warriors can't pay that because they have so much money tied up in the big lads. Let's so, see. I mean, uh, um, oh, I just what's did their this mid-level exception situation. So I mean, the Dubs. What sucks is they don't have his bird rights, so they can't go over the cap to get yeah. Peyton. They have the bird rights on Looney, so they can bring him back um, and go over the cap. That does make it difficult. To bring back GP here, it would probably have to be a mid-level exception. Yeah, so the taxpayer MLE is, uh, what is it, like $5 million? Maybe a little bit more than that? I'd, I'd take that if I'm GP to come oh, back here. Yeah. Yeah, like five to six, I think. So, I don't know. I mean, he's worth a little bit more than that, but he's not worth a ton more than that. And it's like, if you want to go try to win a ring, you know. But at the same time, I mean, he's 29 years old and he hasn't been making NBA money at all. So, I could see if a few million a year really, really matters, especially a multiple-year deal versus a one-year deal. But I think... Obviously, they would love to have him back. They would love to have Otto back. But the problem is it's just tough to get these guys back at the minimum when they just had such obvious impact on a championship-winning team. That's kind of a pretty big stage. And they're winning basketball players. They do the right stuff. They do the little stuff. They play their roles. And teams need that if they want to actually win at the highest level. Okay. Let me ask you this, Logan. When we talk about legacies, we focus on Steph individually. Looking at Steph, Clay, and Draymond right now, having won four rings together, do you think that they are the best big three of all time? And again, maybe you don't have a list off the top of your head here, and if you don't, that's fine. I can probably answer that myself. No, I think they are. Um, I think they are the greatest big three of all time. I mean, there's just been nothing... I mean, there's been no modern big three that can compare, in my opinion, and that's kind of the distinction, right? I mean, the other ones you can... It, ah, maybe second. I, I forgot about Duncan, Parker, and Ginobili. Oh, fuck. Mm. That's tough, man, because 
like you said, all three of these guys are top three in playoff winning percentage all time. Draymond, 70.3. Clay 70.3. Steph, 69.4. Like we said, when all three of them started, and that's probably the distinction, all three of them have started. They've never lost a playoff series. That's probably why I'd say they're number one. Um, it, I mean, it's it's tough. I mean, they're the only... There's only two trios to have four rings. That's the Spurs' big three and this big three. That's big time. Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman are up there, but, I mean, if you're going with individual abilities, I think I'm taking the Warriors. You have more floor spacing with um, all three, with Draymond at his peak. Um, there's Magic, Kareem, and Worthy. There's Bird, yeah. Mikhail, Parrish. There's Dumars, Zeke, and Lambeer. And then there's LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. Man, that's tough. I-, I think I would. I mean, just because... Again, man, in the modern NBA, there's been nothing like this. So, I, you know, outside of the Spurs, I'd probably say Steph, Clay, and Dre, the Spurs, big three, then probably the Lakers. The Lakers are an interesting run. I, I don't want to just go off raw hardware because yeah. KD is there for a little bit. Damn, that's a good question. Thanks. They're top three. They're top three for me um, with what they've done. I think you can make an argument for number one. Are they number one for you, or or who do you have number one? They're not number one for me. So uh, this is interesting. We actually did a pod way back when, when we used to do so many top tens of our top ten NBA trios, but that was based on peaks. We looked at one season. My number one for that was actually Steph, Katie, and Clay in 2016-17. I mean, that was just an offensive trio in terms of uh, efficiency and amplifying each other and shooting I, we've never seen anything like that. But they don't have the collective resume. I mean, they have two rings together and only three seasons. So I don't think you could say they're the best big three of all time. I actually think I would lean Magic, Kareem, and Worthy. And it's difficult because the thing is, they have three rings together and they have only a few years really where everybody's at their peak. Even if that, because Worthy takes a couple years to get to his peak, and by that point you're looking at like 85, and it's like, well, we're not dealing with peak Kareem, obviously, but we're still dealing with clear, like, top 10 player Kareem. But, you know, he's 37 by that point. But they do have a lot of big-time accomplishments. They do have the factor of having had two top 10 guys on the planet and the guy who was probably the best player alive and... Talking about Magic here, of course, the best offensive player alive and um, a three-time MVP in that stretch. And also they have, I think, just a... I just think there's more collective talent there. And, like, all three of those guys won a finals MVP during that run together. I think that that's telling about the overall caliber. And uh, I don't know. It's tough. I think I would lean slightly there because I think the one-two punch of Kareem and Magic, even though it wasn't absolute peak Kareem by the time Worthy was there, I mean, that's just significantly better than Steph and either Clay and Draymond, whoever you think the second best guys. Like, again, it's not peak Kareem. It's, it's certainly not, but still, I think I would lean with that trio. And then... Yeah, we're definitely getting into the Steph, Clay, Draymond territory. I mean, they might be next. I think it's them, Bird, McHale, Parrish. That's probably it. You know, people talk about 
Actually, yeah, Jordan Pippen and Rodman, I think, belong there. You could honestly pick a couple combinations of, of Celtics duos from the Russell era. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking back at, at our list. I had Jordan Pippen and Rodman in 96-1. You've got Russell Cousy, Heinsohn, Wilt West, Baylor, uh, Kareem, right. Oscar, Dandridge. Season, yeah, and then like Garnett, Pearson, Allen. Yeah, I mean, collectively, um, I, I think we've got the top one. I mean, the four titles is legitimate. Like, that's an insane thing to stick together for. So they're top five. I don't think that they're number one for me because I think that, again, it's just like Draymond was maybe a top ten player for a year. Clay has never been all NBA, right? He is not. And so, or no, he has. But he's only been third team, I think. Yeah, so I don't know. It's just like you have a couple fringe top 15 guys at their peak alongside Steph. I feel like there was a little bit more talent on the Lakers teams. But we're picking nits here. Regardless, they're in the conversation. There's an argument to be made. And the overall winning resume you know, is perhaps unrivaled since the Russell Celtics. So... What do you think about the individual legacies for Draymond and for Clay? Does that intrigue you? Like how this changes things for them? Does it change things a lot? I don't know if it changes a, a whole lot for me. I mean, Steph's obviously impacted because of how well he played in the series. I'm right. super happy for Clay. Um, you have to be come to, coming off of a torn ACL, torn Achilles. He missed nearly what he missed like two whole seasons. Yeah, I, yeah. And now he's a four-time two champion. Yeah, I I don't know if I don't know if my outlook on these guys has drastically changed. I mean, I'll agree, I'll give a fuck ton of credit for Dr- to Draymond for I mean, I think he's the greatest like non-scorer ever. Like I I don't know, like to just be so impactful yeah. when you're so shitty at putting the ball yeah. in the cup. He is, I agree. To to make yourself that effective in just little shit, short roll passes, dictating the offense, playing hard nosed defense every night. Clay, Clay's resume, if we're talking about it, may have taken a hit after this. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, shout out Clay for coming because it is tough, man. I mean, that's why it's so tough getting on the court. I almost man, it made me really sad listening to Clay post game talk about him getting his ass busted by the Santa Cruz Warriors. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hearing him talk about that journey back, I'll give him a lot of props for making himself effective, but yeah. this was not a glowing series for Clay. I'm trying to think about all time if this changes anything. I mean, I don't know. I, I think, honestly, outside of Steph, the guy that um, whose legacy has r- risen the most has to be Wiggins. I, again, he, he's the second best player here. So I, I don't know if this really affects my standing of them all time just because they got another ring. Um you know, I think I kind of know. I, I I think it marginally, you know, may bring them up over some other guys, but I think Wiggins for me is probably the biggest one, just because, I, just of how how far along he's come, man. We've talked about Wiggins a lot in these last two, but I think if there's anybody who's been really affected by this and really raises their legacy, in my opinion, it's probably him. And I don't mean that. I don't know, man. I don't know where Wiggins is all time, but this is a big thing. Being the second best player on a championship team is a massive mm-hmm. fucking deal. 
honestly extrapolating this, I don't know if you can do this off the top of your head, Carson, as you are my basketball almanac. Yeah. Is Wiggins the worst second-best player on a championship team ever? Wow. That's an interesting question. So I would look back first to the 94 Rockets. That's the first team that comes to my mind pre-Drexler because, I mean, second-leading scorer on that team was Otis Thorpe. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I would say it's probably that team. But he's in the bottom tier. And, I mean, it is crazy to say that out loud. He's the second-best player on a championship team. He may not have been throughout this entire season. You know, I would have taken Draymond overall. He's the second-best player in this series unequivocally, by far. And that's incredible. But I agree with your fundamental point because when you look at Draymond, when you look at Clay, it's obviously great. It's incredible to have a fourth ring. It's especially incredible to have a second ring without KD that is so validating to how brilliant the Warriors collectively have been and Steph has been and those guys have been in playing their roles. But you don't look at this and think, oh, wow, these guys were so great. So it really matters. I mean, four rings, that's a special tier all time. The 80 Celtics couldn't get there. The Kobe Shaq Lakers together couldn't get there. Like, very, very few groups have in NBA history. Four is a big number to hit. But, to me, this is about Steph more than anything else. And it, there is a lesson to be learned in this from Wiggins, I think, obviously. Because people have talked about his transformation over and over again. But it's just fascinating because people look so different in different contexts. And I think that's a lesson that we learn every day damn day that we watch basketball it's like you can take a guy who is talented but disengaged at times and floats around and doesn't want to play both ends and takes bad shots and if you put him in the right situation if you empower him to catch and shoot and to weaponize his athleticism on both ends and you just get the guy to play hard and play a little bit smarter then you can get the most out of him and things are never over it's never too late to make an adjustment unless you're Russell Westbrook or maybe James Harden, in which case it's definitively too late to make an adjustment. But it is a reminder that we make these definitive assessments when guys' careers are not over, and it's not always fair, and I think Wiggins is a prime example of that. So I completely agree with you in terms of legacy elevation. Anything else on the legacy front, or do we want to look at where the Warriors stand right now? They are the favorites to repeat as champions next year. I think they're at plus 450 or something. We talked a little bit about the roster configuration, trying to bring back those pieces, but what do you think about their probability of running it back? It's always tough um, predicting these things a year out. Um, so much can change in the offseason. A lot will change in the offseason. So much can change on this team. But yeah. Steph, Draymond, Wiggins, Clay, they're all going to be back. And... So I guess the real question is, are they the front runner? I'd probably say yeah. I mean, at least out of the West. And thinking about yeah. competition, my favorite competition for Golden State next season is probably the Clippers. Um, mm. I really like L.A. because you've got Kawhi coming back. You've got PG. Reggie Jackson is still going to be around. Robert Covington is under contract. I really like the... I really like the defense in Los Angeles with George Covington, Kawhi, and then whoever they stake at the five, if it's Zubac. Um, so I like L.A. a lot um, just because they already have a lot of assets coming back. You know, there's not a lot of – I don't have to do a lot of 
Um, I don't think it's fictional with this free agency. There's not a lot of moves they can are forced to make. Dallas is interesting now that they've gotten Christian Wood. Like I genuinely mean that. Like if you thought this this run was, I wouldn't even call it fluky because they have Luka Doncic, and mm-hmm. with a guy like Luka, I mean we just saw a team with Andrew Wiggins and I win a title as their second best player. And you know I'm not saying that the supporting cast for Golden State is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's unexpected, but you can win a title with Christian Wood as your second best player. I believe that. Like, so Dallas is interesting. I mean, Luca is just yeah. such a force. I think they're going to be back and competitive. I don't know if there's anybody else that really sticks out to me as true contenders. Like, I'd say Dallas. I'd say the Clippers. Then maybe the healthy Nuggets and Grizzlies are up there with me as well. And. Um, Nuggets are going to get healthy. MPJ is going to be back. Jamal Murray is going to be back. Hopefully they can shore up this bench. Um, I'd move Aaron Gordon if I was Denver um, and, and search for something somebody else, move, free up some cap space. And then Memphis, I can't count out. If they end up getting another big player to play alongside Ja, I'd give them a punching chance. After that, I don't really think there's anybody up there for me, Carson. Um, maybe the last team I'd say potentially is Minnesota if we see a massive Anthony Edwards jump to, you know, top 10 in the league. I don't expect that to happen, though. Those are the teams that I expect to compete. Golden State is above them all. Right now, my hierarchy is Golden State, Los Angeles, Dallas, then Denver, then Memphis, then Minnesota. Where do, where do you stand? Are they the favorites for you next season? Oh, also, sorry, not to count it out, um, New Orleans is probably in that Minnesota mm-hmm. tier, depending on mm-hmm. Zion. Yeah, I think once we're getting into that range, we're looking at teams that can't win the title. So I wouldn't really worry about them if I'm the Warriors because I think they're just in a different class. I think that this feels appropriate. It feels appropriate to me that they are the favorite, but there should certainly be no heavy favorite. Like plus 450 around there feels about right. Maybe I might even go a little bit closer to the plus 500 range because it's like healthy Milwaukee, man. You know, they could easily be every bit as good, if not better, than this Warriors team. The fully healthy Clippers, same goes for them. The fully healthy Nuggets are going to be damn scary if they can hold their own on the defensive end. The Mavs, I mean, look, because of the context, we probably can't talk as much Christian Wood as we would like to now. Maybe we'll do that more as we dip into offseason content. But, like, the guy just went and averaged 19 and 10 in Houston on 58% from two, 38% from three, almost 60% true shooting. He's an incredible athlete, a high-level floor spacer, comfortable putting the ball on the floor, can attack closeouts. Like, everything you want, playing pick-and-roll with Luka Doncic, he is exceptional at. Truly exceptional. And now you're at the point where, although he's not, you know, a significant plus defender, and he's a little slender playing the five, you at least have a really good athlete who is long, who's an instinctive shot blocker, who's a force on the glass, like all these things that they didn't have at all when, you know, you're trying to figure out what to do with Dwight Powell, who doesn't have any of that floor spacing or ability to attack off the bounce. So like, yeah, the Mavs just got a lot better and all they gave up in terms of meaningful assets was the 26th pick. That's pretty damn good. And then out East, I mean, obviously the Celtics are going to be back. They're going to be damn good again. The Nets, I do think have a potential path. The Sixers, like, it feels like there are around eight teams that when you look ahead going into the year, you think, yeah, I could see them working their way firmly into that title conversation. And I think that's a testament to the talent and the balance that is around in the league right now. And I am very, very happy about it because I mean, if the Warriors don't repeat, that'll be 
five different title winners in five years, right? That's incredible. I don't know the last time we had that in the NBA, and people talk about parity unfavorably at times because they look back to like the 70s, which was kind of the last time we had it. But this is different because you have really, really talented teams with superstar players, and there's just a lot who are legitimately good enough to contend at a similar level. So, yeah, I think that as long as they can maintain a decent amount of this role-player supporting cast, like, you do not want to lose the Loonies and the Otto Porter Juniors and the Gary Payton of the seconds of the world. Like, those guys are really good at what they do. They're not irreplaceable. You just need to find the right guys. Like, you need to find smart, versatile veterans who are willing to play hard, who are willing to fill their role, and you can find those guys. Maybe you can find more of those guys who have been undervalued elsewhere for the minimum. But I would certainly like to hold on to the guys who they have right now. So I think that it doesn't feel wrong to me that they are the front runner. And for much of the year, I mean, that was our contention. It was once this team is at full health, full strength, they should be the title favorite. And again, things got so ugly injury-wise and defensively that it just felt like they kind of had to sacrifice that status. But they came back and obviously they justified it and they were incredible well and the thing about the most and the thing about the dubs for next season too is i mean maybe you don't have to go out and get as many of those quality veterans i agree you want to retain all these guys uh from looney to opj uh, to gary payton the second to andre iguodala for sentimental purposes um i i mean the dubs have moses moody they have jonathan kaminga they have james wiseman all coming well hopefully wiseman will be back next season and You'll have two full seasons of those young guys under their belt. Wiseman will actually hopefully play like a full season, and we'll see what he's like. Those are just extra points and variables that could lead to Golden State being better. I wouldn't bank on it because um, all those guys seem pretty raw still at this point, but they could be productive enough next season to crack the playoff rotation. I would expect it, and I'd be hopeful for it. You know, um, yeah. That's another thing that plays into their favor. I think I already know the, uh, the answer to this question, Carson, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Who do you think is more likely to repeat in their conference next season, Boston or Golden State? Golden State. Because of the Bucks factor? Yeah, I don't think the Celtics were straight up the best team in their conference this year. I think the healthy Bucks were probably a bit better. I think I agree. Um, and they'd probably be my favorite out of the East if you ask me to pick right now. With that, I mean, if we want to get into... Boston shortcomings in this series and what they can do. I mean, you already yeah. touched on the big thing, and we saw it damn near night to night in this series, and that was the fact that they didn't have a guy as a lead ball handler, and it's tough. Mm-hmm. But you saw it every every fucking possession down the floor, it seemed like, in game six. Jason Tatum just going up on drives, and he does that dumb shit where if he's got the ball in the post or if he's going up for it, he brings it low, and... You know, that's to secure the ball, but I mean, the Warriors were eating on that. Steph was poking shit yeah. loose. Gary Payton was uh, knocking shit loose. And it's not even just that. Like, just normal stuff. Marcus Smart making boneheaded passes. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, feeling flustered, not knowing where the ball needs to move, um, and not knowing what to do with it, getting suffocated up there. They don't have a true ball handler, and I think if they get that, I don't know if I can say that Boston is my favorite, but it definitely clears up a big... A big hole for the the biggest hole, the one that we pointed out all season long that maybe they're shortcoming. You always yeah. point out to the Ricky Rubio types. Um, he's coming off a torn ACL. He's going to get paid, I think, 
I want to say $17 million, um, off the top of my head right now. That's a big contract. They probably can't afford a guy like that. I mean, call me crazy because I, I, I do want to look at... We'll, we'll explore this more when we get into teams' off-seasons and stuff. But looking at it right now... <laughs> God, I feel stupid asking this question. Maybe you'll laugh at me. At this point, is a guy like... Can a guy like Rondo be, be like a legitimate difference maker in the playoffs for the Celtics if they went out and got him back? I don't think so, but let's stick to the Rubio point because that contract is up. So, I mean, I think you can sign him at significantly lower value probably given his age and given that injury. And, I mean, he was so, so good for the Cavs early in this year. Like, there was admittedly a scoring stretch for him that wasn't really sustainable and a shooting stretch, and by the end of it, when he got hurt, he was shooting 38% from two, which is, you know, not great. You never want Ricky really trying to score the ball a lot, but in a situation like that, I mean, yeah, you can get him for decent value. Ricky Rubio is an impact kind of guy. I, I don't think the Rondos of the world are good enough, but... Really, I mean, defensively, this team is all the way there, right? They're as good of a defense as we've seen in the last decade, pretty much, dare I say. So it is, to me, that is the thing. And maybe they need just a bit more legitimate scoring punch. Like, obviously, it would be great if they could have a lead scoring and playmaking guard, but you don't just waltz into those kind of guys. You know, like Dame doesn't just come around the corner. And uh, unfortunately, Marcus Smart just isn't consistent enough or good enough to fill that role. But I love their role players. I think Tatum and Brown as your two leading scorers absolutely good enough to get you there. But you just need a little bit more offensive talent from the perimeter, both in terms of scoring and playmaking, I think. And uh, that's what they really need to find. So, yeah, I do think that they have a tougher path back because I think that they have a more glaring issue. And I think that we saw that come back to bite them. Yeah, and the the beauty of this for Boston is most of these guys, are basically their entire rotation is under contract. Everybody's going to be back next season. Smart, yeah. Brown, Tatum, Horford, Williams, Derek White, all under contract. Uh, Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, and Neesmith have team options. Tice is also back next season. I mean, literally the only expiring contracts they have are the token white boys at the end of the bench. Luke Cornett, Matt Ryan, Nick Stauskas, and uh, also Broderick Thomas. So, I mean... Yeah, it just sucks that guys like that don't grow on trees. You know what I mean? Or just even serviceable ones. And I'm sorry, what's up with Sam Hauser? What's his contract situation? I actually don't I didn't write down Sam Hauser. Maybe he's under con- Oh, I think he's I think Sam Hauser's two-way. So I, he's probably yeah. restricted as well. They could bring him back. Another token white he's got boy. A team option. Shout out. Let's go. <laughs> um Yeah, Sam Hauser, you're right. He's got a 1.5 team option for next season. So they can bring him back too. Um I mean, I thought I think you're exactly right. I think the scoring punch off the bench, I think maybe a guy like, uh, he's got a $10 million deal, I think, for next season. Maybe a guy like Terrence Ross off the bench or something like that would be an interesting option. Um, Mm. Just somebody who can come in and fill it up. And I do think, I don't know, man, maybe two guards that just, one that can control the tempo of the game and then maybe another to score. Like, I, I hate pointing the finger... Peyton Pritchard did not have a great series. Uh, he had been pretty productive throughout the playoffs. Um, he had a couple big games against the Bucks uh, when they were leaving him open. I don't think Pritchard is, I don't know, maybe he gets better next season. I just don't think Pritchard is the, the option, the guard option off the bench. I think that's, 
the biggest glaring weakness in the rotation, then another scorer. Uh, but it's very doable. You know, again, like you don't need, with all these guys under contract, you don't have to move a whole lot of pieces to to make something, you know, to to get those assets. They're not crazy assets that you need to go out and get with everybody back under contract. Um, so I think Boston has moves they can make this offseason that can get them, honestly, to be the favorite. I think it's hard to surpass Milwaukee with Middleton, Holiday, and Giannis and the supporting cast that they have. But if they shore up those two holes, Carson, Boston may very well be my favorite at the start of the season again. It's tough because I just really want them to have a legitimately highly skilled point guard. Like, just pretty good at both scoring and playmaking. And yeah, obviously smart produced. And he ended the playoffs averaging 15 and 6. And but he, you know, showed you, like he was horribly inefficient. He showed you his limitations in game 6, though. Yeah. I agree. And it's just like there's a level of versatility as a scorer, I feel, that is really missing from him. And he just has some troubling tendencies where he just falls into bad habits and doing dumb stuff. Like, man, if they had a Jordan Poole, if they had just a just a quick and cerebral and skilled point guard, that would be really, really great. But, you know, again, those guys aren't super easy to find. So, I don't know, especially if they want to hold on to all the assets they have right now, then you're kind of in trouble. And, obviously, you don't want to lose anything defensively, so it's tough. I don't know that the Celtics are going to get a lot better, but I don't really see them getting much worse. And I think what they did defensively is sustainable. I think they have a great culture and a great coach. And, uh, I mean, they're a very, very good basketball team. The one last thing. I would like to ask you about from the Celtics perspective and if you have more after then please continue but when we look at what happened to Jason Tatum in this series obviously it was a brutal shooting performance and game six was no exception in that respect so how do you feel about what we saw from him how does this affect your perception of him after he was vaulted into such lofty conversations and averaged 31 a game post all-star break on 65% true shooting was this incredible two-way wing and through the conference finals in the East, you know, had been outside of Giannis. It felt like the best player in the conference in the playoffs. Maybe some people would say Jimmy, but I would have taken Tatum. So how does going out like this impact things for you and how you perceive him? It's a good question. I mean, cause it's a, it was, it was a troublesome series. I, I know a lot of people got hyperbolic with this stuff. Uh, some of my friends that only watch the playoffs, I asked him about Tatum, and he said that he'd take <laughs> that he would take him over like LeBron, uh, over. He even had him like up near Luca for next season. I thought he was crazy. I think the interesting question is like, would you rather have Tatum or a guy like Kawhi for next season? <sighs> Kawhi. Yeah, I think I think I agree. I I don't know, man. I mean, I. I think the concrete thing that it – I hate to replay this point again. I think the thing that it hammered home for me is just he can't be your lead ball handler. And I don't mean for the majority of the time. I want the ball in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum's hands. But they can't be your guys. Like, And I think we saw some of the ugly tendencies that I thought Tatum had gotten away from rear their ugly head in this series, not getting downhill all the way, being overly reliant on – Yep. Um, the mid-range shooting. And a big thing, too, that I don't think I had picked up on before this, Tatum does not deal with contact really well when he's driving to the rack. Like, the Warriors mm-hmm. played really physically with him in this series, and 
Looney was big bodying. Uh, Gary Payton, Draymond Green, whoever switched onto him, he had trouble finishing at the rack too. So I just think that some of these weaknesses in in Tatum's game were realized. But I don't think it makes me think any. I still want Tatum on my team. I still want. I think Tatum can be the best player on a title winning team. I, I still believe that. I think he's going to be better next season. But he's got to work on these holes in his game. He's got to become a better finisher. He's got to get better at getting downhill more. Again, the shot quality in these uh, in these games were not great from Tatum because he was settling mm-hmm. so much. So I think Tatum has things he can work on, but I don't, I'm not coming away from this thinking that Tatum is a fraud or this was no. you know, not repeatable, but I do think there are glaring things in his game that he has to work on in this upcoming season. Yeah. I think that scoring... For Jason Tatum, as good as he is, is just harder than it is for a lot of the truly great offensive players around the league because there's still so much that difficult shot making needed. And he was sub 45% from two in these playoffs overall. And that's just obviously not going to cut it. And he was a lot better than that in the regular season. He was incredible down the stretch of the regular season. He also sucked for a month of the regular season and was like shooting, I think, below 40% from the field while leading the league in field goal attempts. 15 or 20 games into the year like it he has stretches like that and when you don't quite have that level of offensive consistency I don't know that you can be like in the top five conversation he was playing at that level for a couple months but I don't think he can sustain that for a full year in the way that other guys can at the same time he's an incredible two-way player obviously and at his peak yeah I mean he could arguably be a top five guy because of that two-way value on his best night But overall, I think he settles in right around the 10th best player in the league. And I do think he can be the best guy on a title team, which is an incredible place to be. And I mean, you know, him averaging seven assists a game in this series and 6.2 assists per game overall in the playoffs is an impressive sign of progress. The problem is it just wasn't consistent enough. I mean, going into game six, my guy Jason Timpf read off this incredible split where Tatum was averaging 7.2 assists per game and wins in the playoffs and 4.4 assists per game in losses. So, so much of their success is determined by his ability to make good decisions as a playmaker, to not force the issue, to read the court effectively, and to be that quasi-floor general. But he just can't do that every night. You know, he's not fully developed in that way yet, and he can still get better. He needs to make scoring easier. He did that more so in the home stretch of the regular season. He was also blazing shooting overall, but he was getting to the line more, he was getting to the rim more. But yeah, those tendencies slip with him sometimes too. So he's very imperfect, but he's tremendously talented. He's come a long way overall. And, you know, the defensive level that he reached this season, the playmaking level that he reached, all of that is still progress. And he was an incredible scorer for almost half of the year. And he was the best player on a team that made it to game six of the finals. So I just don't think you can look at that with 24-year-old Jason Tatum and say, oh, what a disgrace. He's imperfect. His imperfections were revealed on the biggest stage. It sucks that he had to go out with just a bad performance in terms of his shooting and all that. And he still has too many of those, really, given the caliber of player that he is. But that's the give and take with him, and that's kind of always been the reality. But this was the best he's ever been, and I give major credit to him, and I think he's obviously you know, one of the great stars of the league for many years to come. This was his fifth season. He's already played so much high-stakes basketball and been so damn good for so much of it. So I'm not going to sit here and slander Tatum, even though he struggled. And obviously, Jalen Brown ended up being the much better scorer in this series. I don't normally like getting all uh, 
big picture, you know, immediately after the fact. And I've asked this on a few pods and uh, over like the past year. Do you think that, I don't know, can teams or should teams look to how these teams were built and try to build something off of that? And I don't mean, I mean, you don't just walk into Tatum and Brown. The Celtics were pretty shitty for a minute um, mm-hmm. and got the Brooklyn Nets picks. But what we've seen with Boston and with Golden State is, you know, save Al Horford. I, these teams were built through the draft and they were built through years of sticking together. And, you know, I mean, Boston was competitive with Kyrie Irving, with Isaiah Thomas at the helm when these guys were really young. I don't know. Can you. Do you think other teams should take this kind of team building notion? Like we've seen the Nets uh, build their super squad. We've seen the Lakers build it that way. Do you think other teams across the league should follow and just kind of rock with a core for a few years and see what happens? Or, I don't know, like, do you think more teams should look to the draft and take more time building these cores out? Or do you think it's just kind of, it is more of a talent thing when it comes to both these teams? Again, Golden State built through the draft too. Clay, yeah. Draymond, and Curry uh, all brought in here through the draft. These teams are exceptionally talented, is what it ultimately comes down to. And these are really, really good organizations in terms of player development and in terms of roster assembly. And we have seen that for basically a decade from both of them now. And, I mean, you talk about the sticking through it aspect, but it's like Tatum and Jalen were both top three picks who, in Tatum's rookie year and in Jalen's second year, Averaged 18 points per game in an Eastern Conference Finals run without their best player on the floor. So it's like, yeah, I think I'll stick with that, you know. So I would say overall it's more just really talented teams, exceptionally well-constructed. What I will say is on the Celtics front, I think they've absolutely given a model to the kind of defense that everybody wants to build. And I think we've known that, but seeing it realized to this extent, this level of athleticism and length and versatility and switchability and size up and down, I mean... This was an incredible defense, and I think people obviously already know the value of wings and versatile athletes and wings who can impose themselves as scorers and defend at a high level, but seeing it realized like this, even with some of the flaws, I think, yeah, that's a team-building lesson. You can't build something like what the Warriors have done because they have Steph Curry and just some really unique basketball talents, and you can't count on having the kind of talent that either of these teams have. But I think that would be the biggest lesson that has been yet again reinforced. We know it's been the trend of basketball, but this was like, hey, that's their thing, man. They are defined by their defensive ability, by their athleticism and size and everything that we just talked about. So I would say that's probably the lesson more than it is like, hey, looking to the draft more. Because if you can get Kevin Durant, you can get LeBron James. Brother man, go do it. You know, I will never for a second say, no, let's see what we can stick out with. Because there's always a chance that the guys you draft suck. And then you have to think, oh, wow, well, we didn't get Kevin Durant. Yeah, that's fair. And I think you make a really good point on the defense. That's something that every team should take away. And I think if you're not a good defensive team, you're just not going to make it through the playoffs. And the best defensive teams year to year, we talk about this every time, come every year come playoff time, that has been the only thing that has rung true um, is defensive teams getting through. The Two best defensive teams out of each conference made it. Boston, best defense in the second half of the year, make it to the finals. Golden State, the best defense for the first half of the year. Then injuries hit. They reach that defensive peak, and they get back here once more. Last season, um, 
you've got the Bucks, best defensive team in the league, Phoenix, right up there with them. Your previous, Lakers and Heat. It is where we are trending, in my opinion, as is the you know the biggest determinant of winning. How many great defensive players do you have? Do you have a great team defense? That is far more likely uh, to get you through than great offense. And I think we have seen that year over year over year, and I think that trend is probably going to continue next season. At the end of the day, if you want to win the title, you need to be a great basketball team on both ends. There's a reason that we didn't see a team that wasn't a top-10 defense win the title. I mean, I believe it's since the 2001 Lakers, and that was really just a matter of effort. They were like 21st in defensive rating, but the year before that, they had been like a top five defense. So I'm trying to remember the Bucks last year actually may have been 11th in regular season defensive rating or something. Maybe I'm tripping. They were definitely back half of the top 10, but the ceiling was there. They had been the best regular season defense for the couple years before that. And so, yeah, that's a really established trend. You got to be a great two-way team. There is no doubt about that if you want to win the title and more evidence of that this year, of course. And at the end of the day, it ends up being the team that had more flaws on one end, as incredible as they were on the other, is the team that is undone. You got to be very complete. You got to be smart. You got to be balanced. You got to be great on both ends. You got to be well coached. There's a lot of things that got to come together for an NBA title, or you could just have Steph Curry. And if you have Steph Curry, you pretty much have punched your ticket to the NBA finals, it seems. So it's wild, man. End to a wild NBA season, a really fun one. Of course, still missing some key characters that we would like to see. It's going to be really fun seeing the full force Clippers and Nuggets and some of the teams that we talked about and, you know, the Nets for more of a full year. Maybe we see Ben Simmons play basketball next season, but this was a really fun and ultimately historic season because I thought the Warriors were going to be really good. I didn't think they were going to win the NBA title. I wasn't sure they had that kind of ceiling. I wasn't sure that they had that kind of supporting cast talent, and they did. And Jordan Poole got better, and Andrew Wiggins got better, and the role players were exceptional at their jobs, and Steph Curry was a supernova. And it's just a really special moment, I think, in all of their careers, and an incredible moment to reflect on given how fall how far they fell and how far they had to climb back up. It is really pretty incredible. So, with that, Logan, we are going to move into off-season content now, baby. Tis the season. I mean, the draft is right around the corner. We will do a draft preview podcast. I unfortunately haven't been able to get as into the weeds with that stuff as I normally love to, and we haven't had as much draft content, obviously, and they're not exactly giving us a long season for it, but we'll still get some of that. Then we're right into free agency, man, and it's just crazy. There's a lot going on in the NBA still, and it's coming at us fast. So with that, guys, hope you've enjoyed this incredible NBA season and hope you have enjoyed nerd sesh throughout and if you have the good news is there's plenty of places to find us all over social media twitter is at nerd underscore sesh instagram and of course tiktok are at nerd sesh tiktok is where we have our most consistent stream of content lots of trivia stuff and also some takes and breakdown stuff so go ahead and check that out of course and also if you go to our tiktok you will see a little link in our bio that is to some friends of ours called sobet and that is a pretty cool subscription service you can sign up for, you'll see our referral code at the link in our bio that tells the people at SoBet that we sent you and we have been working with them for a while now and it's really a lot of fun. You get some exclusive content from us and from a bunch of other sports experts, sports betting influencers and you get some exclusive picks, you get some video content. I know that the stuff I handed out on SoBet did pretty well. I believe I was 
75% overall. Not a huge sample size, but still felt good about that. Meant to calculate how much money you would have won if you bet $10 on every Carson Breber bet. I didn't do that. Logan, I know you also did really well with player props, so go ahead, check that out. Uh, as we work into the NBA offseason and there's no NFL, we're going to be coming out with exclusive video content and whatnot there, stuff that you can't access anywhere else. So if you really enjoy our stuff, go ahead and check out SoBet. And it's a really cool resource because it's not just us. Like we said, it's like a social media feed where you get posts all exclusive from a bunch of other knowledgeable and fun people as well. So check that out. Check out the podcast wherever, you know, Spotify, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, Stitcher, if you're over there, all your audio platforms. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys to the moon and back. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Session. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.